Let's read together God's word as I proclaim it here. Please follow along if you have a Bible. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, open this text to our understanding. Reform us, reshape us according to your word written as the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Will God be faithful to his promises? And will God's will prevail even when we are not faithful to him and to his commands? Today is Reformation Sunday, and we recall God's faithfulness to his church when great leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin were used by God to change his church purifying it from deviations from sound doctrine, such as the Middle Ages doctrine of trusting in works combined with grace as the way to salvation, which led to the moral decadence of the clergy and a selfish pursuit of money through indulgences, seeking the funds to build edifices, to build personal reputation and power. God prevailed in the 16th century, and God prevailed at the time of Abram in fulfilling his covenant promises, ensuring that he would make Abram a great nation, which we see now in the church of Jesus Christ, which contains all the citizens of the kingdom of heaven saved by faith in Christ, even as Abraham was a man of faith. Christ will prevail, he fulfill his promise to build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And this building of his church happens at the worst of times also, like the Middle Ages. And sometimes we think today that things are falling off, the wheels are falling off the axles. We look around us and we wonder why so many people don't attend church anymore. And we wonder where is the moral leaven in our society that Christianity used to provide. But it's at the worst of times that God works. Hudson Taylor once said, when God is about to do a great work, first, it is an impossible thing. And then second, it is a difficult thing. And then third, it is done. He does it. So come to Christ today with me. Come to his word and trust that he will meet us even at a difficult time. The difficult time for Abram. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. Right when he came from Haran, right between the fertile crescent. You know what fertile means. It means a lot of things grow there, okay? He came out of Haran, he arrives in Canaan, and the first thing that hits him is a famine. How's that for a challenge in your family context? Yes, indeed, what should he do? We will consider the promise of God, as it says in 12, verse 7, to your descendants I will give this land. Today we focus on the descendants part. In chapter 13 next week, we're going to focus on the land part of that promise. Yes, God promised Abram that I will make you a great nation. To have a great nation, you need to start with some descendants. And that's what we're looking at as there's a threat here to the descendants of Abraham through the moral pollution of the possibility of his wife going to be with a pagan. This would be an overthrow of the challenge of, of God fulfilling his promises. And so we see that his reaction to famine was a challenge against the fulfillment of God's promise. Let's consider three points. First, verses 10 to 13, Abram's wife and descendants by Abram are threatened. Then in verses 14 to 16, the woman is compromised by Abram's forced deception. And then verses 17 to 20, Abram's wife and descendants are rescued through plagues. So verses 10 to 13, Abram's wife and descendants by Abram are threatened. And it is a marriage that is threatened by half-truths, not the whole truth. When the famine struck Canaan, the promised land, Abram's decision is to go south to Egypt and to dwell there, as it says in verse number 11, is uh, verse number 10, is a temporary dwelling. The ESV word used there is sojourn. And it's based on the Hebrew word gur, which is a verb indicating turning aside to get lodging for a while, for a night, for several nights. But it's not your permanent home. It's like turning off for a while from the highway and getting off at an exit and getting a good night's sleep at a Super 8, or it's turning off and living somewhere for business purposes for a while. He was not abandoning the promised land, 
But then in the next verses, we do see the problem that develops. In verse 11, he says, Indeed, I know you're beautiful. Every man should say that to his wife. And we should be people who affirm. But he has a problem in his head concerned about that beautiful wife. Verse 12, they'll kill me, but let you live. Sarah was 10 years younger than Abram, which we learned from Genesis 17, 17. At that time, Abram was 100 and Sarah was 90. So we bring it back and crank it back to this time. It says in Genesis 12, verse 4, that Abram was 75 years old. So she was 65. Now, Sarah lived to the ripe old age of 127. We see that in Genesis 23 and verse 1 that Sarai died at the age of 127, meaning that she's basically half of her age span. If you live to 80, it's like you're middle-aged at age 40. For her, middle age was 65 because she lived to almost double that, 127. She was a beautiful woman. And you may think, well, Abram has the right to wonder about what's going to happen if he brings his beautiful wife into this pagan country. But it's a one thing to wonder, and it's another thing to fear. It reveals here that he wants her to lie and to say a half-truth that he is the husband, he is the brother of her, but to deny that he is the husband. Abram didn't know where he was going, what was going to happen in terms of when he got there, when he went to Canaan. Abram had trusted God. He says, I will bring you to a land that I will show you. He stepped out, and apparently without fear. He stepped out in faith, but now his faith seems to be wavering. And that's often what happens. We step out boldly in the walk of faith, and then we wonder, What's going to happen? I can't handle this. I could get killed here. And so his fear should not be considered foresight. It should be considered craven fear that borrows trouble. Abram was looking for trouble rather than trusting. And that is unbelief. Fear led Abram into trouble. He asked his wife to lie for me. Therefore, it will happen, verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Now, there's the lie. We don't live because of lies that people tell us. On our behalf, we live because of our God. It says in Acts 17, 28, in God we live and move and have our being. We don't live because of somebody, whether it's a spouse or a church or somebody we lean on. We don't live because of the government. We don't live because of our employer. We live and move and have our being in God as the Apostle Paul wrote. Now, note that Sarah was the half-sister of Abram. If you want to turn over with me 
turn to 20 in verse 12 where it says, but indeed, 2012, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So we see here that when Abram asked Sarah to say she was a sister, it was a true, but it was a half-truth. It ignored the fact that Abram was her husband. And there was an intention to deceive the Egyptians so that they would not kill him. The problem is, with half-truths, we threaten things. We are people who put distance between people. And in fact, that distance happened when Sarai was ripped away from Abraham. Abram's fear-based desire to deceive challenged God's covenant promise. Here's his game plan. He thinks that if he has Sarai tell that lie for the time that he is together with her and she's in his house, well, at least then he'll be safe. He won't get murdered then because basically they'll be looking her over and saying, wow, that's a pretty good prospect. And that's the sister of this man. So let's think this over. And then if somebody wants to make an approach to Abram and to present a dowry, to allow this woman to be married, then basically he has some time. He can dicker. He can bargain, as very often happened in dowry negotiations. And right during that time, he can accumulate grain, get it onto his pack animals, and by dark of night, escape north back to Canaan with his wife. He may have had a thought process like this, that this will allow him to be down there to get food for a while, simply living there, and then to make an escape at the appropriate moment. You know, we plot a life, a lot in life. We plan. Do you ever live your life in fear? Do you ever live in such a way that you are just trying to plot out things that may involve ill to others or ill to yourself just because you're afraid of something? Back in 2011, we as a congregation memorized a verse, one of our Redeemer verses, and it goes like this, Hebrews 2.11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews 2.11, we can trust in Christ. He is our big brother. We are being conformed to him. He is sanctifying us. And that applies even when we make mistakes, even when we sin. The whole process is that we're being sanctified from a state of non-perfection toward the goal of being perfect in Christ. Not that we're going to achieve it or get there by the time we die, but that is the goal, conformity to Christ. When we face fear... <coughs> that we are not going to get through this journey without compromise. We need to run to Christ and believe that he is our big brother who will look out for us. He is the sovereign God who will care for us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But if we bow to our fears and lie and use deception and urge others to lie for us, God may deliver us in the end, 
but we can cause hurt to others in the process. And that's what happened as we move to our second point, verses 14 to 16. Sarai is hurt. She is put into a stranger's house where she could fear for her own personal well-being. The woman is compromised by Abram's forced deception. Can you imagine the horror that a middle-aged Sarah had when taken to Pharaoh's house? What hurt and disrespect to her person Abram bought, brought upon his wife. Don't operate out of fear and deception. God's character reveals what he is calling us to be, people of the truth. Jesus said, referring to that sanctifying principle we just heard in Hebrews 2.11, that God is sanctifying us. In John 17.17, 17, it says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God is a truth-telling God. His character reveals what we should be. And to have increasing fellowship with him, we have to have more and more of a desire to know the truth of who God is, the truth of his word, and to be transformed in the truth in our thinking and in our behavior. Sin, as we saw last week, has an effect upon our thinking, has an effect upon our actions, as we looked at Romans and uh, two weeks ago, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And the word of God needs to reign in our life. The powerful reformation of Christ's church in the 16th century came from an unleashing of the word of God, the truth of God. Luther says, for the word created heaven and earth and all things. The word must do this thing, and not we poor sinners. In short, Luther said, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, I visited with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, and the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Unquote. This word from Genesis 12 is here to warn us to trust God rather than living in our fears. To trust God rather than deceive people. We need to be sanctified to trust God in all things. And so Abraham, when he had expected to be having a time in his home of peace with his sister, quote unquote, there in Egypt, and to have the opportunity to escape if they identified her as a match and they wanted to marry her, he would just get out of there during the dowry negotiation process. But then the unexpected happened. Then the suitor was a man with whom you do not negotiate a dowry. 
The woman is taken. The woman is brought to the palace of Pharaoh, and he gives the dowry according to his standards. There's no opportunity for escape. She has been seized by the potentate of Egypt. Do you see what happens when you're dealing with a Pharaoh? Do you see what happens when you start negotiating with the devil? Do you see what happens when you use deception rather than trusting in God? Things go off the rails. Your well-planned things, the well-meaning plans of mice and men just go down the tubes. And so Pharaoh summons the wife, and there she is in his palace. In verse 16, he gives the dowry of sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This is the source of Abram's wealth. He was a wealthy man. It started here. And note also there was a female servant. That was probably where Hagar came into the story. And she will complicate the story in a couple chapters. Yep, this is not working out. Here we see that we need to trust God and, and avoid the detachment. Look what happens. Not only is Sarai physically detached from Abram by going to Pharaoh's household, but look at the words used in verse 14. Moses, when he wrote this down, is inspired by God to start using impersonal words for Sarai instead of her name, instead of her relationship with Abram. Look at verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman. In verse number 15, the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And in verse 16 he treated Abram well for her sake. It's almost as if her name has disappeared, her relationship with Abram has disappeared, and she is canceled. This is the result of deception, that we cancel people. They are detached. They are no longer in this close relationship. And that can happen in marriages today. We can be those who pressure one another to be something other than God's will. And it is never right to pressure someone to violate God's word, which is lying. Lying on behalf of me to protect me. Detachment is associated with deception. Just think of Bill Clinton and his denial of relations with that woman a couple decades ago. All she is now, she's just a woman. She's a her. Let us repent of deceptions, half-truths, and outright lies, lest we hurt those near to us. Let us always love our spouses whom God has given to us. But watch what happens when God steps in to rescue Sarai, it's like the cavalry in the Wild West with the bugle call blaring. I love this scene. God confirms his promise to make Abram a great nation with many descendants. 
as we shall see how important it is to God. God has a plan for both Abram and Sarai. And it's clear here. When we see what happens in verse 17, Abram's wife and descendants are rescued through plagues. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of, she got her name back, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God vindicates his daughter in the faith, Sarai. Sarai is as much a part of this picture as Abram in the, in the Hebrews in the faith chapter in 11, verse 8, and 11, verse 10, both Abram and Sarai are lifted up as people of faith. And this is a case where a marriage is upheld by retribution and the reality of grace. She is named, she is related to her husband, Abram. And we can infer that Pharaoh had not consummated personally any relation with Sarai. For he objects in verse 19, why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. He had not yet done that. You may ask, well, how does he know that the plague is due to Sarai? Well, maybe there's a little cause and effect here that as soon as Sarai moved in, that's when the plague started. It could be that everybody in the house had the plague except Sarai. She was healthy. And so, being an intelligent man, Pharaoh says, I better talk to Sarai. I better find out what's going on here. And maybe he asked her, what's going on? Are you who you were told to be, the sister of Abram? And that, at that point, she just blurts out the whole truth, tells him, no, I'm, I'm his sister, but I'm also his wife. And so, on that basis, we have Pharaoh coming and rebuking Abram. What is this you've done to me? God powerfully vindicates the marriage of his chosen patriarch and matriarch. God vindicates their marriage through plagues that come upon Pharaoh's house while grace is poured upon God's people. A grace which we don't deserve. Abram didn't deserve this. But he got it. He got the solution to his problem. All his schemings didn't work. His wife was dragged into Pharaoh's household, but now he is able to leave. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It reminds us of the case in Exodus chapter 12, 35 and 36, where the plagues came upon the people of Israel and God drove them out as God led them out through the Exodus. And as they were leaving, the Lord had given the people favor in the eyes of, of the Egyptians. Also that they granted them what they requested. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. So this giving of gifts on the way out is foreshadowed here in Abram's experience. This is God's grace operating. The judgment came upon the pagans. God's people got the grace. And you may think, you know, that doesn't seem fair. How is it that, you know, Pharaoh gets punished? How is it that he gets punished when he's the one who's rebuking Abram for what Abram did? 
I think we have to remember that the entire system of Pharaoh was corrupt. This idea that you can have this woman, and then this woman, and then this woman, and have them brought to your harem was contrary to the will of God. Whether that woman was a wife of somebody else or just a single woman, it is all degrading to the personhood of women, and it is degrading and against God's will that relations should be between one man and one woman for life. So Pharaoh didn't get the short end of the stick. He was rightly judged for the entire practice of his harem. God, however, brought grace to his people. God has power to protect the promises of his covenant. And even when we stray, when we walk away, when we are those who violate God's law, we can count on this fact that God will hold us fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, the tempter prevailed in Abram's life. He succumbed to fear. He asked his wife to deceive. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Let's sing that chorus together. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Let's just sing the chorus together. Here we go. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Let's do it again. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Thank you so much, Hannah. God blesses us even when we screw up. God blesses us even when we sin. He is hanging on to us. He's making ways to bring us together with him to reconcile us. God has great power to protect the promises of his covenant even when we wander away from his path. This is never a warrant or a reason to wander. As the apostle Paul writes, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Romans 6.15, just because God has power to rescue us from our worst decisions, we are not meant to walk into sin perversely and deliberately. And just think of all the pain we cause when we do that. Think of the pain that Abram caused Sarai as she was taken out of the arms of her husband and into a strange house with great threats to who she was. 
Come to Christ. Trust in him. Deacon John Ungerford has often quoted to me one of his favorite verses, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. In all your ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge him in your personal prayer life. Acknowledge him in your worship on Sundays. Acknowledge him in your giving. Acknowledge him in your service of Christ in your daily life. Acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. The God we serve is a God of truth and come in truth to God today. Come in repentance. Come knowing that when we don't tell the truth, we block that relationship. One time, Elder Jack Mary demonstrated this to me during my first years here at RRPC. He told me a story about a person unnamed to whom he and a deacon ministered in the first years of the life of Redeemer Church back in the 1990s. Financial ruin was upon that family. There were zero resources, limited income, and amazingly huge debts. And this family had gotten counsel from a Christian advisor and a Christian radio show that they should never declare bankruptcy, for that was inherently immoral. But Jack's point to this family was you need to say the truth. You are bankrupt. You're bankrupt financially. You need to declare that to the state. You need to declare that to your creditors. And so because of that extreme situation, this family told the truth, found relief according to the laws of the state, and moved on in their life following Christ. You see, God can handle our junk. What he can't handle is our lies. God is saying, come to me, be truthful with me. Come and come now. If you've never believed, trust in the living God. Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And remember that God remembers you. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God's grace will rescue us and vindicate his covenant promises. Let us pray. Oh Lord, God bless each of us today. Lead us to truth-telling about our own spiritual condition truth-telling in our life, in the world, and in the church family. And, O oh Lord, help us if we have marginalized and brought separation and even dehumanization of people because of our deception. Let us walk forward and name names, especially the name of Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, and invite other people by name to follow this Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.